Uh, Today we are getting into Mark chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7. Uh, If you have it on your technology, use use your... Opposable, opposable, is that the word? Opposable thumbs? Is that the right word? It sounds wrong, but opposable thumbs. And you can get to Mark chapter 7. So what do you think of, my question for you to start off is, what do you think of when you hear the word purity? What comes to mind? Purity. Water. All right. Okay. Water. I'd say water. What's that? Clean. Clean. Hmm? Free of contaminants. What do you think of when you connect purity with a person? A what? A bride. I thought you said a bribe. I'm like, that's, yeah, a bride. A bride. Moral purity. Anything else? Uncompromising. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I thought of the word purity, what, what comes to mind for me very often is, is a person that avoids certain behaviors. Um, and those behaviors are usually established by a, a religious or a social standard in which they have been deemed impure. So typically, a religious thought says that engaging in particular corrupt activities, and, and to be fair, those activities might vary um, depending on the religion or the standard. And if, if you do engage in those corrupt activities, you're, you're no longer pure, you're, you're defiled, you're impure, what the Jews of Jesus' day would call unclean. So what is one to do? The answer is that you, typically the answer would be that you modify your behavior. Um, So I can conform my behavior, my outward life, to align with those things that would attribute to purity and avoid those activities that would be considered impure. And the thought is, is that if I can control those outward activities that defile me, keep them at arm's length, then I would be avoiding those very things that would hinder my relationship with God. Or maybe not even a relationship. Maybe that's not necessary. Maybe it's just that God should accept me because I'm pure. Um, the strictest of religious Jews in Jesus' days took this to a real intense degree. And it's really easy to judge them, right? But, but all, most of these sort of things that we see that the Pharisees are doing, that the Sadducees are doing, very likely started with good intentions. Um, many religious traditions today still reflect um, a sort of code, a standard, a standard of dress, a standard, uh, maybe a dietary standard, a, a ritual standard, a, a specific moral code or religious practices that if you partake in and, and do to the T, then you're pure. If not, you're defiled. 
And, and what, what I thought about with this is that really a lot of people that don't even consider themselves particularly religious still tend to fall in this kind of mindset at some level. I think it's why a lot of people can say that they are morally good people and expect that God should receive them in their goodness. Uh, someone that may have this vague belief that there's a God and still say, hey, I, I, I'm a generally good moral person. Why do they say that? Because They say that because, and I've had this conversation so many times, I've never killed anyone, right? I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't robbed a bank. So, but what is someone doing when they're rattling those things off? They're saying that they have some sort of external standard. And according to that external standard, whatever that may be, maybe it's just something they came up with or, or they've collected in, in their own mind and heart. According to that external standard, they, they deem themselves pure. <laughs> they deem themselves good. And, and therefore, if there is a God, he too should see that they're pure, or at least pure enough. External standards, follow the standard, and you'll be okay. Let's read verses 1 through 8. We'll start with 1 through 8 in this story in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees, these very religious people of Jesus' day, and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus... So again, now we, we see that Jesus is still in his Galilean ministry. These folks are sent from Jerusalem. And you, and you get this sense that in the Gospels, especially in Mark, that again, Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish life. So, and the center of the Jewish religion. So now the, these folks are sent from the center of Jewish life and Jewish religion to see what this guy is all about. They gather around Jesus, and it says in, in verse 2, some saw saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. And then it's in parentheses, as if Mark is commenting here because he's writing to a generally Gentile audience, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many, uh, many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips... But their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So the disciples are eating, and these religious folks that have come up from Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism and Jewish religion and life, are observing Jesus this teacher that's there's been a lot of buzz created around and his disciples and they notice that they're eating with dirty hands now a few of you mothers might be like hey Randy 
I'm with the Pharisees on this one. That's disgusting, right? I, I try and tell my kids this every day. Wash your hands before you eat. But, but the issue here really had nothing to do with hygiene. Now, some of, some of the original laws that, that God did establish really were good for the health, right? But, but what was going on here didn't have anything to do with hygiene. It had to do with ritual cleanliness, and, and, and it really had to do with all these religious, extensive religious traditions that had been added on to what God had said. They, at Jesus' time, there were oral traditions. Eventually, they get written down, and eventually they form what we have today, the Jews have today, called the Talmud. And, and the Pharisees considered these oral traditions of the elders to be as binding as God's word itself. Uh, there's a writer, Walter Wessel, he writes, if God's law was silent or vague on a particular subject, one could be sure that the tradition would be vocal and explicit. So what the, the, these leaders do is they try and attack Jesus through his what? Through his disciples, right? That still happens today. I don't know about God because his, his people are kind of a mess. And sometimes it's fair. Sometimes it's fair to look at us and, and say we're kind of a mess, but can't judge God that way. But what they're saying is certainly... Teacher Jesus, rabbi, you must not be a very good rabbi if you're allowing your disciples to be so sloppy, to, to not honor the traditions of the elders. The tradition here is that there should be regular ritual washing of hands and of cups and of utensils, of bowls and plates and pitchers, because somewhere along the way, your hands probably have become unclean. They've been defiled. Or somewhere, somewhere along the way, the cup you're about to drink in probably has become unclean. Not literally with dirt, but it's been defiled. And most often what they were talking about is I've come in contact with a Gentile, <laughs> which I think you all here are. So I've come in contact with a Gentile. I am therefore unclean. If I eat with unclean hands, then I'm ingesting that which defiles me outside in. I actually read one, one scholar that said that the Pharisees would consider if, if a plate even had the shadow of a Gentile cross it, it was considered unclean. The Jews, the Jews created hundreds of laws like this. And, and again, the, the, the goal, was, as far as they were concerned, was to build a, what they considered a protective fence around God's law and word. That in every situation of life, there would be an answer of what I should do. Every situation, there, I would know, according to their rules... What's pure, what's impure, what's righteous, what's unrighteous. In some ways, you say that's terribly practical. <laughs> oh. 
Every situation that, that, that you come into, what should I do here? Don't worry about it, the Pharisee would say. Don't worry, worry not, we have a rule for that. Just follow the rules. What's the problem with that? A lot of rules to break. Creating your own righteousness. Creating your own righteousness, yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah. So it's this really interesting dynamic. In some ways, you see the intention, but it's kind of application run amok. First of all, it's a heavy burden. It's like, I'm trying to help you out, Sean. You need to know what to do in that situation, that situation, that situation, that situation, that situation, that situation. Don't worry, we got a rule, we got a rule, we got a rule, we got a rule, until you're like, oh my goodness. And that's what Jesus says. You're just piling rules upon rules. And what you're actually doing is you're not helping anybody. You're putting burdens on their back. They, they don't even, they can't even keep track of all the rules. And that's where Jesus invites and says, hey, listen, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But, but the, There's another problem with rule-based religion that it cuts through the complexities and the nuances of life. And in such complexities and nuances of life, they demand discernment, they demand godly wisdom, and they demand my reliance on a relationship with God that I would say, Holy Spirit, like Jody talked about this morning, Holy Spirit, what do I do now? But if I have a rule for every situation, what do I need that for? Well, I just look at my list of rules. But this applies to every situation like that. Check. So, so it's, this, it's this situation where you're no longer really depending on the heart of God. All I need to do is adjust my behavior, fall in line with the succinct do's and don'ts, this list of rules... And I can be considered pious and good and right before God. And those people that don't do that are none of those things. I don't need to personally seek after God. So really, in this way, following this sort of system, my heart can actually disconnect from the very God that I profess to serve. That's what rule-based religion does. Not to mention... It's propensity toward self-blinded hypocrisy. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Hey, Isaiah was right when he wrote about you. You play actors. You people that are more concerned about appearances than you are reality. Right? That's what a hypocrite is. I'm more concerned about what I put forward, what you all see, than what's actually going on. And the propensity to become nitpicking fault finders then. Oh, look, they're doing it wrong. 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 And I can look down on everybody else who just doesn't get it right. Verses 9 through 13. He said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother... And anyone who curses his father and mother should be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, and again, Mark explains that is a gift devoted to God, 
then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. So Jesus argues that their religious traditions, rules of men, not of God, so disconnect them from the heart of God that they actually can use their traditions to do the opposite of what God says is good, right, just, and fair. They can do the opposite of what is of the heart and command of God. You say, I would never do anything like that, right? He gives this practical example. He says, hey, clearly God's word says that you should honor your father and mother. And that is not just a a command to a child. We tend to apply it that way. Well, see, kid, honor your father and mother, respect, obey. That's not just a command to a child. That's also a command, as long as someone's parents are alive, to love, to support, to look after even their aging parents. But their tradition, and again, this is kind of getting into their context here, their tradition that they set up actually created a loophole that an adult child can say to their parents, hey, listen, I would have loved to have helped you out, but whatever I would have used to help you out, I'm dedicating to God. And then legally, according to their tradition and their system, the parents then had no right to that help. So, so in short, what was happening is that these, these Jewish adult children could use this tradition to justify neglecting their parents, which was the command of God. So all of a sudden, this, got, this gets run amok that the tradition is held on par with God's word, and the very tradition that they were using was stopping them from obeying and loving their parents. Jesus is like, something's majorly wrong there. That your tradition is actually justifying you treating your parents badly. So I think there, you know, there needs to be a pause where we say, oh, wait a minute. Where may my religious tradition or my cultural t- tradition or my political tradition actually justify me doing the opposite of what God says is good? The opposite of loving people, caring for people. Do our traditions justify mistreating the foreigner and the alien, of which God says that we should be mindful of and care for? The stranger. Do our our traditions encourage us to keep at arm's length with those who disagree with us? Or, or do our tradition keep, uh, keep us at arm's length from people that we consider subtly, we might not put it this way, unclean? Maybe they're not living up to the moral standards that we would expect. So, so if I'm going to relate with them, if I'm to love them, if I'm to show them kindness, somehow maybe I'm becoming defiled. And as such things, we subtly allow our traditions to get way in the way of God's heart. And sometimes find ourselves doing the very opposite of what God originally commanded. All right, the lesson. Verses 14 through 17. 
Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? That's a, <laughs> Jesus is like, uh, what's, are you so dull? What's going on? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go, for it go, doesn't it go in, I'm sorry, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of the body. He's talking about poo-poo there, okay? <laughs> Literally, some people actually think, so this is a little interesting side note. Yeah, talk to me about it later. It's a, it's, a, it's a poop conversation. It is an interesting poop conversation, though. So he says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And that's, again, I'm not going to go take a lot of time. But, again, Mark's speaking into a context of Gentile believers that were, that were trying to understand with their Jewish friends what's clean, what's unclean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All, of, all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And again, I don't think this list is meant to be exhaustive. It's, it's, it, it speaks of some behaviors. It speaks of some words. It speaks of some attitudes. The heart here is not a blood-pumping or organ. It's talking about the inner man, the center of the inner man. Um, in the 16th century, Thomas Cramer wrote, thank you, Katie Amick, for this. And if, if you're going to write a little simple quote down, this is one to ponder. He said, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Start thinking about how many times that applies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Jesus comes full circle to this eating with dirty hands thing. So where the religious assumption is that moral defilement happens from the outside in. And therefore, I can keep inwardly pure as long as I protect myself from all that stuff out there. Jesus says that moral corruption is actually an inside-out problem. It's not that behavior is unimportant. It certainly is important. But it's that behavior is not actually the source of purity or impurity. I'll say that again. Behavior is actually not the source of purity or impurity. It's the heart of which the behavior flows. Behavioral adjustment then, even when I conform to a specific code, doesn't necessarily fix the problem, does it? So for example, a child might grow up in an abusive home. That child in that abusive home may very well learn to adjust their behavior, right? But it doesn't necessarily fix the heart. The heart might be building more and more fear 
more and more resentment, more and more bitterness, more and more anger. And they might actually learn through their behavior adjustment to mask that more and more and more, and then it ends up being carried into every relationship for a lifetime. A, a, a particularly devout religious person might outwardly be morally upright. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. I've got it down pat. But their supposed morality might actually justify treating others lovelessly, which is, just, which is against the command of God, because the outflow of their hearts is actually arrogance. It's actually self-righteousness. It's actually pride and, and a stuck-up superiority. In the end, Jesus says that the problem is not outside you. Oh, the problem's out there, the problem's in the culture, the problem's with the politics, the problem's with, you know, that, 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 that. The problem's out there. The problem's always out there, isn't it? It's got to be somebody else's problem. It's got to be something that someone is putting on me. It's got to be the culture and the people at large. The problem is out there. And Jesus says, no, it's not. The problem's in here. It's a heart problem. And behavior, wrong actions, wrong words, wrong attitudes, only reflect, reflect what's going on on the inside. And let me tell you this, all the tradition in the world, all the religiosity in the world, all the do's and don'ts in the world will never fix a corrupt heart. So let's wrap up with a couple of questions. First off, what are we to conclude concerning religious tradition? Is Jesus condemning all such tradition? I don't think so. For centuries and even millennia, Jews and Christians have met like we are meeting this morning and, and singing praises to God and praying together and, and hearing God's word read and taught. Baptism has been a, a part of the early church since the early church that, that we are united with Christ and it's a way of outwardly displaying that being united with Christ and included in the church. Jesus says that we should regularly remember him as we come together and, commun and, uh, and celebrate communion. But there are a lot of traditions that are extra biblical. Specific styles of worship and practice. We, we don't even, we, we lose sight of it, Right? You think, do you think in the first century they, they lined up 100 chairs like this? So this is church. It is? There's all kinds of extra-biblical traditions that we have. Expectations of dress, exacting codes of conduct above and beyond God's word. And I think in all of these we should be asking some questions. Do they, as John Phillips comment, comments, magnify the outward ritual rather than the inward reality? Do they lead us to the heart of God? Or do they simply establish a code that we subtly put on par with God's heart and God's word that if I, if I keep with what this code says is pure and righteous, I'm doing well. I don't need to discern. I don't need godly wisdom. I don't need to seek God's heart. I just need to keep the code. Do we see that when traditions become legalisms, 
built to supposedly safeguard God's word, God's law, to build a fence around them, we, as Donald English points out, do not so much safeguard God's word as we imprison ourselves. So we are not free to perceive its deeper meaning and embrace it. Do our traditions cause us to major on the minors? Jesus says in Matthew 23, 24, to the religious people of his day, he said, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. I always think, the image is, you strain out a gnat. Oh, I got it. Oh, look at that. And you're swallowing a camel. You're majoring on the minors. Your traditions are causing you to major on the minors, and you're forgetting the more important things the Lord says. Justice and mercy. Faithfulness. And do my... Do our religious or cultural or political traditions allow us to justify treating anyone poorly? Anyone. When we're called to live for their utmost good. Our propensity toward tradition must be regularly weighed and transformed against and weighed, weighed against and transformed by Christ. I think we need to hold our traditions with a loose grip. It's not that they're all bad, but they need to be held with a loose grip. Some tradition may add some coherence to the rhythms of life, but we need to keep perspective because it's so easy to lose perspective on what is tradition and what God actually says and what the heart of God actually is. I've had a lot of conversation, and I'm not, I've had a lot of conversations where we're talking and we're saying, but this is what God's word actually says. And he said, well, but you know what? This is how I grew up, and this was my tradition. And, but let's, think, let's talk about the heart of God. I mean, I want to respect how you grow up, grew up. I want to respect the church tradition you grew up in. But let's talk about what Jesus did and what Jesus says. Shouldn't that supersede it? We've got to be willing to adjust tradition. Sometimes we've got to be willing to let it go altogether when it interferes with what God actually says. Lastly, the more probing question is, what are we to do concerning the inner corruption of our hearts? <laughs> that which causes us to overflow in impure words and actions and attitudes. And I think the answer is the same. It must be weighed against and transformed by Christ. In the light of Christ, we find that our hearts are, as Jeremiah said, deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Can you imagine? That's what, that's what the prophet said. Listen, your heart is deceitful above all things. But the problem's out there. No, it's not. It's a heart problem. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 26 that, that you don't, when you're cleaning a cup, you don't need to clean the outside first. You need to clean the inside first. And he's like, when you're cleaning the inside, you know, I think of this all the time when I'm, cleaning, when I'm washing a dish. You're cleaning the inside? Don't worry about the outside. The outside will get clean as well. God promised in Ezekiel 36, 26 that for those who come to him, he will give them a new heart and a new spirit. 
How do I get my inside clean? In the light of Christ, we're seen for what we really are. But in the love of Christ, we're transformed. 1 John 1.7 tells us that it is the blood of Jesus, God's Son, that purifies us from all sin. You can have a million traditions, you can have a million rules, but it doesn't purify you from sin. It doesn't fix your heart. The blood of Jesus does. John Phillips, he comments on this list of inner corruption that Jesus states in verses 21 and 22. He says that they're all things that, in all their appalling and incalculable sum, were to be placed upon the Lord Jesus at Calvary. From within, from a man's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And Jesus became your impurity so you can be pure. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be clean. Because that's what we're all fighting against all the time. And give me the rules. Let me do the rights and wrongs. Let me get it all together. Let me show everybody else that my life is all together. Because there's something inside that's saying something's wrong. I got a heart problem. And Jesus is like, it's not outside in. It's inside out. I can fix that. Isaiah 1.18 prophesied the words of God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Only Jesus can make you clean. He took your impurity so you, you can have his purity. And then when I'm made clean and I come to Jesus, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I'm a mess. I need you. I need a new heart. He gives me that new heart. He forgives my sin. He throws him as far as the east is from the west. He drops him in the sea of forgetfulness. He says, it's my righteousness put on you. I took your, your unrighteousness upon myself. When we come to him in faith, and he says, now I'm going to give you a new spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to start working on you. And it's going to start transforming your heart. It's going to start making you in, into the likeness of God's Son as you put yourself under the authority of that Holy Spirit, under the authority of His Word, under the authority of the Lordship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, may we never try and supplant the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit of God with our religiosity and our traditions and our arbitrary rules. What a, what a cheap and lifeless substitute. May we see, Lord God, that though traditions may at times help guide us, it is only Jesus, only the Holy Spirit that cleanses the unclean heart and transforms us from the inside out. So we pray, Lord God, that you give us a new heart and you give us a new spirit that we trust not in our traditions, but we trust in your word, your heart, and may we yield to it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.